Father, uh, we, your, your word, Father, teaches us that we flatter ourselves too much to detect or hate our own sin, that we do not see the true condition of our own hearts. And so, Father, we ask that uh, you would bring your gospel home very clearly to us this morning, that we would have a better grasp of what your Son did for us to make us right with you and to make us your children. And as we are gripped, Father, by the gospel, may you also reveal to us the true state of our hearts, that we might uh, turn to you for amendment of life, for wholeness and for freedom, that in our day-to-day lives we might bring you glory. And all this we ask, Father, as you pour out your Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Um, It's funny how many times I think about this fellow who, um, uh, I think it was uh, one of my last summer jobs before I was ordained. I had a job um, working with a a master painter, and uh, we went to, we were in a big building, and we went to one of the, the part of the building, you know, where there's all the the heating units and the air conditioning units and all of that type of stuff that virtually nobody ever goes to, and we had to paint it. And uh, I, I was his assistant uh, helping him, and uh, he liked taking long breaks. And one of his, uh, he very early on, somehow or another, I can't remember now how it happened, but he discovered that I was a Christian. And uh, so for the whole summer, he would sort of grill me on it. And uh, But one of the things that he kept going on over and over and over and over again uh, especially if I brought in some type of argument or reason to, to deal with his objection. Uh, he would say, you know, I just don't understand this God that you talk about. Like, why doesn't he just give me a vision of him or just a vision of heaven or something like that? If he just gave me some type of vision or something like that, then I would believe in him. Why doesn't he do that? Uh, you know, through the years, if I had a dollar for every person who said something like that to me, well, I wouldn't be able to buy a house or a car. It doesn't happen that much. Uh, but I'd have quite a few really good steak dinners somewhere if I had a dollar for every time a person's asked me that. And maybe some of you are thinking about that. And I don't know if you noticed, but the, the Bible text that Ken read in Second Corinthians, actually the Bible tells us why God doesn't do that. So it'd be a great help to me and a help to yourselves if you open your Bibles and uh, turned to Second Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, open your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start looking at the first verse, because the Bible, in a very, very powerful way, addresses this particular question. And uh, once again, if you don't have your own Bible, you can, uh, you can get that one there, or you can just listen along. And uh, just so you know where it is uh, in, the, in the course of the letter, um, uh, we're coming to the end of the text. In fact, uh, one of the verses that we're going to read today most scholars say it's the basic uh, message of the entire letter. Um, in fact, I'll just tell you what it is right now, that most scholars, when they study this letter, they say if you want to pick up one short little sentence that describes everything that Paul's trying to do in this part of the Bible, it's, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But uh, just in the context, uh, Paul is in the middle of what's called the fool's speech, um, just last week we looked at how he said, I'm going to play the fool, and I'm going to play the fool and talk like a fool and boast like a fool, and uh, Paul is doing it in the hope that by acting like a fool, 
he'll sort of uh, puncture um, the uh, the problems and the the, the the opponents that he has uh, in that church, because he's dealing with a group of people who um, are very good looking. Uh, just think of George Clooney, and um, they're very uh, suave, they're cultured, they're sophisticated, they know how the culture works, and they've come into the church, and they're very impressive, very well-educated, very well-spoken. Uh, you know, they don't have a hick accent, uh, but they have a cultured, well-educated ac- accent, good diction, very, very clever and smooth with words. And they're trying to get the church to be more culturally accommodating, And they're also trying to get, at the same time, the church not only to be more accommodating to the pagan culture that they live in, but he's trying to encourage them to take on rules and regulations which they claim really go back to a better way to understand what we call the Old Testament. And uh, and so they're trying to give them new rules and new regulations to really up their life. And the third thing that they're doing is they want to go on and on about the visions they've had. And that's what we're going to see. So that's where we are in the letter. He's halfway through his full speech. And that's why it begins like this. I must go on boasting. <laughs> see, by the way, you know, context is so important. Like if you come across somebody who's going on boasting, they say, no, I'm just following the Bible. In Second Corinthians 12, 1, it says, I must go on boasting. No, it, if, if you go back a little bit, he says, I'm going to be an, a fool. And I'm going to talk like a fool. It's a fool speech. Okay. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, Just pause here. Um, This is a poetic way of referring to the highest heaven. Uh, In in a moment, we're going to see the word paradise, which is sort of another way of saying the third heaven. And... um, uh, it's uh, where God actually is. It's like going to the throne of God where God is. And the image of paradise that we're going to see in a moment, it's um, a lone word from another culture that really is a way of saying like the Garden of Eden. So it's, it's, it's trying to say that he, he's like the Garden of Eden that's in heaven where God walks with people. That's where I've been. Okay, it's just some poetic language. Uh, we'll, we'll read up again verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And just sort of pause there for a second. It's uh, not immediately obvious here in the English, but in the original language, the idea is that uh, God told him he's not allowed to speak about it. So it's not that he can't find words, but that God told him after the vision that you're not allowed to talk about it, what you've seen and heard. Uh, Verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And just sort of pause for a second. I don't know if you've noticed, it's very subtle, and he's going to make it clear in the very next sentence. This man that he's talking about is himself. So here we have the very thing 
that I would say hundreds of people to me. I, I, there would not be a year where I don't have four or five or six people tell me, if God wants me to believe in him, why doesn't he just give me something like a powerful vision, like, you know, of him or of, the he, of heaven, or just, just something like that, some type of vision or revelation. I, you know, every year I have people who say that to me uh, once we get into a conversation and they find out that I'm a Christian. And so here we see that Paul is claiming that he had that very thing. In fact, he's had more than one of them. And uh, so, so, so the question can be, well, okay, if Paul had them, and it's really odd that if Paul had them that God told him he wasn't allowed to talk about it, but George, if it happened to Paul, why can't it happen to me? Why can't it happen to me? Well, Paul goes on to talk about it. Um, and, and, and just note the first thing, he says, verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, some of you already, you're a bit nervous about this, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will more, all the more gladly, sorry, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, it's a very, very, it's a very curious thing, isn't it? And, and just first of all, let's just, okay, you know, I, you know, God humbles me up here all the time. And it could, it probably is the case that I'm vastly more wicked than everybody here. But if you're, if many of us are honest, if we had a choice to spend five minutes reading the Bible, where God said you could have five minutes reading the Bible or five minutes of a vision of heaven, what would we pick? Unless I'm the only wicked person in the room, I would pick the vision from heaven. So you see, on one hand, Part of the reason that we're so troubled when people say to us, if God wants us to believe me and to believe in him, why doesn't he give me some type of vision? Part of the reason we're so troubled with that is that we agree with them. If you could put up the first point, Andrew. If we're honest, the Bible and the gospel seem weak and paltry compared to my own vision of heaven. And if those of you who've read, um, I think it's called A Series of Unfortunate Events, by paltry, I mean, <laughs> by paltry, I mean weak, thin, gruel, not very much, uh, very, very little. Uh, that's what paltry sort of means. I just had to throw it in. Uh, but the Bible and the gospel seem weak and paltry compared to my own vision of heaven, of me being able to have a vision of heaven or a vision of God, or of angels, or of the supernatural, or of the spiritual. If we're honest, that's how we think as Christians. You see, this is the wonderful thing about the Bible, that when you actually think about it and meditate upon it, all of a sudden, not only is it going to be answering a question that others pose to you, it actually is starting to pierce our own hearts and reveal to ourselves something about ourselves that we did not know before. In fact, um, if you could put up the next thing, Andrew, 
here's the issue. Remember in verse uh, 7, it says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan harassed me to keep me from being conceited. In the Bible, when something said twice like that so close, it means we're supposed to pay attention. (laughs) And here's the second thing. Private revelations and visions make me think I'm superior. You know, that's what happened to Paul. He started to think he was superior to other people, that he was better than other people, that God loved him more than other people, that not only that he just had this vision, but it probably meant he thought he had far better views on politics, on on food, on all sorts of things, because that's what it happens when we get conceited, when we're full of pride. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Paul says in the text, if you just go up a little bit here in the text, uh, in verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. You see, it's, because uh, one of the things, I've met, I've met people who claim to have um, many, many visions and stuff like this. And here's one of the characteristics of a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. Their lives are a train wreck. Their lives are a train wreck. And in many cases, if you were to ask me, would you like to go on a drive to Armprior with them? If you're from out of town, that's like a 45 or 50 minute drive. I'd say no. <laughs> And, and so, but, but often people who've had or claim to have these visions, or maybe they have, and, you know, you know, because God, God did it to Paul, he can do it. But what they want is they don't want us to look at what they actually say and how they actually, what they actually say and what they actually do. They want us to somehow evaluate them as, in fact, being somehow superior because of vision. You see, it's a human problem. It's a human problem that Christians share. Because the problem of being conceited is a Christian problem and a Muslim problem and a Hindu problem and a Buddhist problem and a secular problem and an atheist problem. It's a human problem. But let me tell you, it stinks very deeply for a Christian to be conceited. And and so here's the thing as well about this same idea, right? If the Bible and the gospel seem weak and paltry compared to my own vision of heaven, and if private revelations and visions make me think make me think that I am superior, I hope that says yeah, okay. Then here's the third thing, if you could put it up, Andrew. The gospel and the Bible are an open public revelation from God, which humbles me. Go back to that first thing. Okay, George, God says to me, you want five minutes reading my word or five minutes of a vision? Vision, you know, because, you know, we often, God, the Bible puts me to sleep, God. It does not get me all fired up. And, and here's part of the problem. You see, the gospel and the Bible are an open public revelation from God, which humbles me. Um, uh, the other day I was in a meeting, um, and I know there's a lot of lawyers in the room. I was going to give this example anyway, even if there were no lawyers in the room. So I'm not picking on you, but I was in a meeting with a lawyer. And uh, it turned out that there was a bit of a question amongst the committee meeting that runs an organization as to what was legal or not. And he said what he thought he, he gave, he told us. And so I then said, you know, I always, I hate being in a room, in a meeting, 
where there's only one lawyer present. Because in my experience, if you have one lawyer present, he or she will tell you what the law says, and we all think, well, the law is pretty esoteric. What are we going to say against a lawyer? And we go along with it. But in my experience, when there's two lawyers in the room, they disagree about what the law says. And everybody in the room laughed. And then the lawyer, who was a really good fellow, he said, George, you got that wrong. And, I, and he said, when there's one lawyer in the room, he gives you a ruling. When there's two lawyers in the room, they give you three opinions. <laughs> and part of the issue is, you see, is that for many of us, law is esoteric. It seems like there's lots of big books, and then if you have whatever number of big books there are for the law, if you go for government regulations, you can like triple it or make it ten times with a number, and who can read it all? So it's very esoteric. But you see, here's the thing, and visions are very esoteric. It's special knowledge, right? But the thing about the Bible is it's a public, open revelation from God. That in that Sunday school class, two-year-olds are having the Bible read to them. They don't even know how to read, but they can hear the Bible. They can learn it. And, uh, you know, it's one of the great problems for theologians and pastors is they can give their great learned things about what's going on in the Bible. And then over coffee, you know, some working class guy or gal who hasn't finished grade 10 can say, well, George, that was all very interesting, but in this text it says this. And it can be humbling. Because the Bible and the gospel is an open public revelation from God for us to read and to hear. For the illiterate and for the literate. And right from the early days of the New Testament, because of Jesus' command to go into all of them, every single people group on the planet and make, and tell them about Jesus and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have told you. And, uh, and, and, and from that, from the very, very early days, the early Christians understood that they were to translate the Bible into the words of the people group and not have the people group have to learn their language because it's a public, open revelation from God which humbles us. It's the complete opposite almost of any type of a vision which is private. So, um, uh, so, so that's, that's exactly here what's going on in the text. But now, now some of you might say, well, George, okay, that's, that's very, very interesting. But you know, George, you often do this, it seems. What about the thorn? What about the messenger of Satan? Like, let's just be honest. It's not just Christians, but for many, 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 many people in our culture, we have a great, there is a great fear that if you get too close to God, God will tell you to do something like wear a suicide vest and blow people up. God will tell you to go and shoot people in a, a mosque or a church. That, um, that God will tell you to behead somebody in a bus. Like it is a great, great fear in our culture. And some of us can just easily imagine what it would be like if we went back to our university or our workplace and we were to read this text and the people in the office might not feel comfortable but if they noticed, if they hadn't fallen asleep, they'd go, whoa, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. They'd, they'd miss all that other conceited stuff. It would be an elephant. 
in the room. So, George, what about that? Well, let's look at it again. Look at verse 7. So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. In other words, he's just described his thorn. We'd say, George, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities are not a thorn. But actually, the word thorn can also be translated as steak. I don't mean the type of steak that you eat. Um, I mean, you know, you get one of those really rough, you know, things where they, it hasn't been sanded and it's, you know, nice and long like this and you can, or even longer, and it's just roughly, you know, cut at the bottom and you can hammer it into the ground. The, the very same word that's translated as thorn can be translated as steak. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities from when I am weak then I am strong. So is the Bible here just telling us to be masochists? What's going on? Thankfully, it's quite a few years ago, but my my only brother had a season in his life where he had some heart trouble, and he had to go in for some surgery. It was a bit of an emergency surgery. And um, and unfortunately, it was one of those cases that he ended up having, the doctors had to go back in twice, I believe. And in each case, they had to open him up. Um, my brother is a joker. The first time he, um, after his first surgery, when he was going to the, his own, uh, to, a, to a doctor, a specialist to check on some, you know, there was a bit of an infection or something. And he, anyway, he, he went to the office and they were doing an intake interview with him. And they said, um, you know, are there any uh, serious things in your family history that we should know about? And, uh, and, and my, uh, my brother said, yes, everybody in my family history has died. And the nurse said... Oh, what was their problem? And he said, well, they're all mortal. Um, human beings die. After the, the doctors had cut him open a third time, and he had to go in for a checkup, he, um, uh, he taped a zipper uh, onto his body from here to here so that when they opened him up, uh, they saw the zipper, and he said, I'm tired of you hammering my body open, I thought next time just install a zipper and it will make it a lot easier. Uh, but, but anyway, here's the thing. Uh, you know, we all know this, that uh, if we have a little kid and they've, uh, they've really scraped themselves and, uh, uh, it, you know, uh, you put a bandage on it and you need to keep taking the bandage off and putting new cream and ointment on it, and washing it out so that the cut will get better. And if the cut is maybe over here or, you know, somewhere where there's hair on their body, they cry because it hurts to take the thing off. And those doctors, to save my brother's life and to save his life again and then to save his life again, they had to crack open his sternum and make a huge big cut and go in and do all sorts of cutting. And it would have really hurt. And it was really inconvenient. But they did it to keep him alive. And we all understand that. But here's the problem with this text. You can put up the next point. Here's the problem, not with the text, but with us. I see conceit and pride in others as a problem 
It is hard for me to see my own conceit and pride. It's even it's hard for me to see it or see it as a problem. You know, one of Jesus' most famous sayings is, uh, it is so easy for us to see a speck in our own eye and not see the log in another person's eye. In other words, I have this little speck, you know, I see this little tiny speck. I have a huge stake sticking out of my eye, and I can't even see it. I just think it's normal living. But I think I can see better than other people. (laughs) I think I'm more healthy. I think I'm more whole. I think I'm more wise. And if I'm one of those two lawyers in a room and we give three opinions, I told the right one every time. And unless we have a really good husband or wife who reminds us when we were wrong, we don't even remember when we're wrong. And that's what it means to be a human being. But in in God's eyes, our conceit and our pride is unbelievably deadly. Unbelievably deadly because it keeps us from grace. It keeps us from God. You know, there's an old saying, you can't look up to God when you're looking down your nose at other people. It is humanly impossible to look down your nose at other people and look up to God at the exact same time. I mean, even if I do this, I'm still just looking down my nose. My eyes aren't up there. Andrew, if you could put up the next thing. Here's this great verse, which is so important in the text. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And in the original language, the way this is expressed, it's expressed a little bit almost like Hebrew poetry, so that grace and power are seen as synonyms. Because as we all know in this life, a lot of times people have power, but they have no grace. And a lot of times people want to offer us grace, but they have no power. But in this text, it's telling us that God's grace is powerful. And God's power is always full of grace. And my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And in fact, in a very, very subtle and, and, and subtle way, Paul is pointing to this, even as he's telling the story. You might have noticed a little bit of this odd thing about praying three times. Like, is the Bible telling me, George, that... Okay, you know, I have this, I have this knee problem. God, heal my knee. Didn't do it. God, heal my knee. Doesn't do it. God, heal my knee. Okay, now I'm not allowed to pray for it anymore. Like, is that what the text is saying? No, no, it's a very, very subtle thing. It's a bit of a literary thing to, to make us think. See, you know, one of the problems I have when I read the Bible is I like to gallop through the Bible, and, and, and galloping through the Bible is good to get a bit of, a, you know, a big sense of what's being said in God's Word. But also we need to, to pause on the, with the Bible. We need to, to think about the different choice of words and to realize that God is not an idiot when he had his Bible put together, that there's subtleties there in the Bible that he wants us to see and to notice. And so go back and look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Who, for those of us who are Christians, who prayed about something three times? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, on one hand, three times is just a bit of a synonym of, of say, it's just a, a sort of a bit of a poetic way of talking about a season of prayer, because that's one of the interesting things about this text. It's, it's telling us that there's a season whereby we pray something, and then at some point in time in the season, we might come to a realization 
that God has, in fact, given us an answer, but it's not the answer that we had hoped for, but he has, in fact, given us an answer. But at the same time that he's communicating that with this language of three, he's also pointing us to another person who asked the Father for something, and the Father did not say yes to the request. And if you are here and you're a seeker, you don't know the Bible very well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus leaves his disciples. He goes to a place to pray. He knows that the soldiers are even now heading towards the garden, that he's been betrayed by one of his friends, that the soldiers are coming on behalf of civil and religious authority, that they are going to arrest Jesus. They know that he's going to be found guilty, and he knows he knows that he's going to die upon the cross the very, very next day. He knows that he does not even have 24 hours to live. And in the garden, he says, Father, if it be your will, may you take this cup from me. Father, if it be your will, may you take this cup from me. Father, if it be your will, may you take this cup from me. And um, the cup, there's lots of imagery there. It's, uh, um, you know, one, one way to understand the state of our lives is if you could just imagine that all of a sudden, it would be like a little bit like a horror movie or a science fiction movie, and you have the really evil person there, and the evil person takes a bit of a cut or something, and something black and foul drips out. And it's some of their evil. And it goes into a cup for another person to, to drink. And you know it, well, it's somehow communicating the evil through the cup. And there's these Old Testament Tanakh images of somehow or another, one of the way to understand that my sin, my shame, the evil that I've done, the evil that I've thought, the good that I should have done that I didn't do. And if you could just imagine that every time, that's a little bit of black, foul stuff that goes into a cup. And a bit of black, foul stuff that goes into a cup. And if you're at all honest about your life, you, you know, eventually it would be like a lake. It, it would be too big to drink. So just imagine that every time it happens, the the moisture drinks, drips, you know, fades away, and it just becomes more and more and more and more and concentrated. And one of the ways to understand what Jesus does for us on the cross is that the cross is not just about his death, but that God, the Son of God, whose own cup would have nothing black or foul in it because he has never sinned, but that on the cross, he takes my cup all of that black, foul stuff from my life, all now represented in a cup. And on the cross, when Jesus dies, three times before he dies, he says, Father, I don't know if I can drink this for George and for for Deborah and for Daniel and for Jonathan and for Yasmin and for Shirley and for Dick and for Shannon, and for Dana, and for Carl, and for Earl, and for Jeremiah. But if that is what you are calling me to do, I will drink it. And on the cross, what you see with him dying is him, in a sense, figuratively drinking my cup. And, you know, if you could put up the next thing, Andrew. 
the God. Remember I told you how the great fear of our generation, one of the many great fears of our generation is if you get too close to God, you're going to end up with a suicide vest blowing innocent people up, or you're going to behead a person on a bus, or you're going to do all these horrible things. Here's the thing. In our worldly imagination, the gods of this world either abandon us or tell us to kill people. But the true and living God revealed in an open public revelation which reveals God's gospel to us. The true and living God who has revealed himself in his word loves people and dies to save them. The gods of this world either abandon us The God revealed in the Bible never abandons us, but loves us. The gods of this world that we fear tell us to kill people. The God revealed in the Bible, the true and living God, doesn't tell his people to kill people. But it tells a story of God drinking the cup of wrath, the cup of evil from each life. He dies to save them. That's why you see the gods of this world cannot understand the cross. The gods of this world, in many cases, like in Islam, they don't believe that that, that such a great prophet like Jesus could actually die upon the cross. They believe that God did one of two things, but it was another person who died there, not Jesus, because Jesus is the second greatest prophet. And the gods of this world that love money and and power, and wealth, and prestige, and boasting, inevitably, as they start to look at Jesus, they say, oh, you know, that stuff about the cup of wrath is so, you know, it's so, it's how hicks talk. It's how uneducated people talk. And they want to make Jesus into an example, but not a sacrifice. Because the gods of this world love power, and cannot get their mind around the idea that the true and living God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who is sovereign and will bring all things to their proper end, that he would love people like you and me, and that what characterizes him is not just power but grace, and that out of his power and his grace, seeing you and me, he loved us, even though we were at enmity with him, even though we feared him, even though we believed lies about him, even though we didn't want him to come close, even though we're mad that he doesn't do what he wants. And in face of all of that, still he loves us and he, he rescues us by becoming weak and dying upon the cross. And that's what's revealed in the Bible. So, you see, here's the thing. We're going to wrap this up very quickly with three little simple points. If, if you want to try to write them down later or something, go on the web page if I go through them too quick. But here's the thing. You see, in the eyes of the world, texts like this, my grace is sufficient for you, verse 9, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Andrew, if you could put the next one up. Oh, sorry, that's not the one I wanted to put up. But anyway, let's put it up anyway. Uh, we'll get that in a moment. Um, here, here, this text, we're going to see it more in the prayer that we're going to do next. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That word rest is the same word that's used in the Old Testament of God 
through the tabernacle being present in the center of his people so that he would guide them, protect them, speak to them, love them. It's an image of pitching his tent amongst them to be fully in their presence. The same word falls many times in the book of Revelation when it talks about the day when there's the new heaven and the new earth and we dwell with God and he dwells with us. It's the exact same word as is used in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt, rest upon. Read it again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, that Jesus himself will pitch his tent in my life. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. From when I am weak, then I am strong. See, what this text is calling us to is not resignation. Resignation is self-centered and passive. Jesus did not resign himself to going to the cross. This text is calling us not to be resigned to being a jar of clay, but to accept it. Resignation is self-centered and passive. Acceptance is other-centered and active. And that's what you see with Jesus with the cup. For God, in his love of God, and for his love of you and me, he accepted the cup, and he walked towards those who were going to kill him. And as Christians have famously said for generations, it was not the nails that held him to the cross, but his love for you and me that held him to the cross. So you see, from the eyes of the world and the eyes of the powerful, to say that somehow or another, accepting that I am a jar of clay, that God can use me even though I am a jar of clay and that I am weak, and that God can use me and that it's his power, well, if that doesn't sound like I have healthy self-esteem, but If it's true, it means I'm actually living in the real world. I was born powerless. I lived the first nine months of my life in my mother's womb. I lived as a child for a long time. And even now, you know, for many of the things that are most important, I'm very powerless. And when I die, I will be completely powerless. And our addiction and love of power is mostly just conceit and pride that we see and hate in others, but we do not see and hate in ourselves. And the fact of the matter is, is I am a jar of clay who had a beginning and a jar of clay who will have an end. But this is not to leave me to be depressed because God, the Son of God, died upon the cross to redeem me, to live in me, and to live and walk with me. Always is a jar of clay. His is always the power. So just in closing, yeah, here's the one thing. The quicker I stop flapping my arms and trying to fly and let him strap me into his plane as his passenger, the quicker I will fly. So it's a bit corny, but what the heck. Next one. 
Lord, help me to grow in accepting that I am a jar of clay whom you redeemed and with whom you will live, you will forever pitch your tent. That's what the text is telling me. Promise of the gospel. You see, it's, it's only in the context of the gospel that we are to understand that we're jars of clay and not be depressed, but to understand we're living in the real world. I am a jar of clay. Book of Ecclesiastes describes human beings as a vapor with a longing for eternity in their heart. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> a vapor that has a longing for eternity, a longing for heaven in its heart. That's us human beings. Next one, Andrew. Final one. Dear Lord, please help me to be gripped by the gospel and then die to my conceit and pride and live free as a jar of clay in the embrace of your grace and power. All to your glory and praise. This is what the text is inviting us to pray. Could you please stand? If the Lord has touched your heart, would you pray that with me? And, um, you know, if you're here today and you don't know where you are with the Lord, and maybe you've been thinking that just reading the Bible isn't as good as having a vision, I don't know, maybe this is, t- if, if this is God has touched your heart, if you have not given your life to Jesus and you feel a bit of a pressure inside of you, stop fighting the pressure, surrender. Stop running and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, may this prayer, may this prayer be my entrance into your kingdom. May this prayer be the prayer that begins me as your child forever. I encourage you, if you feel that pressure, to not push it off, but to say yes to it. Please join with me in praying. Dear Lord, please help me to be gripped by the gospel and then die to my conceit and pride and live free as a jar of clay in the embrace of your grace and power, all to your glory and praise. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Make us these jars of clay embraced by your grace and power and learning to live, whether we are lawyers, stay-at-home dads, or stay-at-home moms, or pastors, or missionaries, working in the government, wherever we are, learning to live for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.